1: Welcome to Freedom of Species, bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. We are broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend.
2: It's 40 years that the station's been around. I hope it's around for the next 40 years. CR has been a trailblazer. It's still the leader and the benchmark in terms of actually engaging the community. Keep the trail
3: blazing. Support 3CR in our 40th birthday radiothon.
2: From June 6th to 19th. To donate, call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. The role it plays is really, really, really important. And the role it plays in empowering people on a personal level, Parent communities and giving communities the power to actually take a bit of control of their future cannot be underestimated.
1: Yes, it's that time of year, guys. Please dig deep and donate to the Radiothon this year. Uh, We all must raise money to keep us all on the airwaves. So, ka-ching, actually it should be a lot louder than that, sounding like... There's a lot of money coming our way, so ka-ching, ka ka-ching, chinga. Please donate. Today on the program we have the first part of a panel discussion put on by Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute, regarding kangaroos. It's great to see referred to in the mainstream media photographs of wildlife carers doing the beautiful work they do, and often you'll see Uh, You know, a baby joey that's been rescued, uh, cradled in a rescuer's arms, and you think, fantastic. Because many of us, if we drive into the country, you don't have to go far to see roadkill, and you think, one, isn't it great that people are rescuing the joeys from these unfortunate situations? Secondly, you kind of think there must be a lot of them around, so that lends itself to believing easily that there is a kangaroo issue, a, an overpopulation problem. Further to that, I guess you've got the fact that, well, if there's a plague of them, surely that's a more ethical uh, green meat, so to speak, to eat. And further entitling that in pin, opinion is the fact that our Indigenous Australians have always eaten kangaroo meat. So what could be the issue? Well, listen up. So
3: firstly, my name is Elise Burgess, and I'm Head of Communications at Voiceless. And for those who don't know, Voiceless is a not-for-profit think tank, and we're focused on raising awareness and alleviating the suffering of animals in two core areas across Australia, which is factory farming and the commercial kangaroo industry. Over the years, we fought hard to protect the hundreds of millions of animals affected by these industries with a core focus on policy and law. Tonight is the culmination of our most recent campaign. It is a campaign with a very simple purpose, to bring attention to the plight of the kangaroo. As part of this campaign, we placed eye-catching billboards across the city in an attempt to challenge Australians to think about the kangaroo. We've campaigned through traditional and social media and asked people to take the pledge against kangaroo cruelty. This is the first time that we've ever taken such a direct public facing approach on the issues of kangaroos. And we were often asked, why now? And the fact is, is the Australian, Australia's iconic kangaroos are hunted in the largest commercial slaughter of land-based wildlife on the planet And while similar trades, such as the Canadian seal hunt or the Japanese whaling industry, attract global condemnation, the kangaroo hunt is (coughs) relatively unchallenged. Many people simply do not realise that some 90 million kangaroos have been lawfully killed for commercial purposes in the last 30 years. And while this is shocking enough, this figure does not tell the story about the large number of illegal kills which take place on private properties or the impact of government kill programs. Nor does it tell the story of the pain and suffering endured by individual animals, such as the joeys, who suffer enormously as a result of this trade. So that was why we decided to go with a public-facing campaign. Because for almost a decade, we've been trying to shine a light on the commercial slaughter of kangaroos. We've been fighting to expose the brutality in this legal profit-driven hunt. But as we've tried to speak out on their behalf, the slaughter has continued unabated. And this is due in part to the overwhelming influence of negative public opinion. Kangaroos, as you all know, are referred to as pests, vermin, a plague. And what's worse, this negative public opinion has given rise to acts of cruelty committed by the public themselves. In 2016, so far, we've seen four cases of unimaginable cruelty, and that's only the ones that have been reported. For example, just last week, you'd all be familiar with the story of the group of young men who chased down two kangaroos in a joey with machetes. That was just this year. So the status of kangaroos as a pest is so deeply entrenched, and it encourages a view that they should be disposed of by any means necessary. So long overdue questions needed to be asked about the laws that govern the treatment of the iconic kangaroo, which on one hand is heralded as an Australian treasure, but on the other is treated with disdain and violence. So what has been the response to our campaign? Well, to be honest, this has probably been the most difficult campaign we've ever worked on. Our campaign has been dismissed by lies, by industry. Government agencies have tried to shut down our advertising at the 11th hour, and even fellow advocates who want us to focus on other issues have questioned our campaign choice. But what's more, we've seen the common tactic by those who support industry attempting to diminish our campaign by focusing on scientific details, arguing statistics or methodology. And Voiceless accepts that there are strong views held by experts on both sides of the debate... But what is even more clear is that there is a need for credible, independent science. But what cannot be argued are the core welfare issues. That is, the brutality of killing dependent young by means of blunt force trauma or decapitation, methods which are sanctioned by the government code regulating the kangaroo industry, the inevitability of shots, which leave kangaroos to die painful deaths, and the inability of authorities to properly manage and enforce compliance with the few regulations that do exist. These have always been the basis for voiceless's staunch opposition to the commercial slaughter of kangaroos, and it is the reason why we've long called for the federal government to bring the trade to an end. But there is one way that we can reach this goal, and that is through informed discussion. So we're here tonight. We've gathered leading experts in the field, Professionals who have spoken publicly on the welfare of kangaroos and engaged in this debate, probably a lot more than they would care to say. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our very esteemed panel. We have the Honourable Mark Pearson, MLC. He is an elected Animal Justice Party representative in the New South Wales Legislative Council. Prior to entering Parliament, Mark was Executive Director of Animal Liberation. We have Senator Lee Rhiannon, is the Australian Green Senator for New South Wales and Green spokesperson for animal welfare. She has worked closely with Australia's animal welfare organisations to promote greater protections for animals, including the protection of kangaroos, and Dr Daniel Ramp, a conservation biologist with expertise in wildlife ecology, animal behaviour, road ecology, pastoral management and conservation ethics. He is a director of the Center for Compassionate Conservation here at UTS, and also a voiceless director. And of course, our delightful chair for this evening, Dr. Jeffrey Mason. He is a best-selling author who has written widely on the emotional lives of animals, including the international bestseller "When Elephants Weep." Jeffrey has served as a professor at several universities in Canada and America and is also a voiceless director. So before I hand over to Geoffrey, I just would like to note that the topic under discussion tonight often attracts diverse opinions and heated discussion and that the v- opinions expressed tonight by the panellists or audience members are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Voiceless. But with that aside, I want to thank you all so much for attending tonight and hand across to our chair.
4: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Both a pleasure and an honor to be here, also upsetting because I had the great pleasure of going with Helen and Ray, and I think Helen's in the audience, to Bathurst, and actually seeing kangaroos in the wild. Um, And there was a particular place we went to where they were rehabilitating them, finding injured babies, bringing them in, and then releasing them to the wild, which is the best possible outcome. And these animals, I went with my family, and it was just so touching and moving. These little teeny joys would come up and put their hands on you and look up at you, and the eyes are just like dogs. And you'd see the love, and you'd think, how could anybody bring themselves to hurt these animals? And how could anybody talk about them as a pest or as, as, what are the other words you use? Vermin, what an awful word, vermin coming from the Latin, a worm. And by the way, Darwin was very interested in worms at the end of his life. They're fascinating, he said, earthworms, they keep us alive. But the idea that people would demonize them in that way, and I, I guess I just want to learn from you. I know nothing about this. and an American coming here and thinking, oh, they're gonna love them the way they love koalas and everybody will respect them and treat them with enormous um, compassion and love and nobody would ever permit them to be killed. It'd be absolutely illegal, of course. It'd be like killing an American eagle. You know what would happen in America if you killed the bald eagle? So here we have three of the the world's experts on this. And I, well, yes. (laughs) I want to find out how did we get here? What does this mean? Why that language? How many are killed? And why? And feel free to just jump in. Mark, you I'm sure have, you all have lots of opinions about this, but maybe we Mm -hmm. should find out Dan, how many are actually... What are we talking about? I mean, it's not dozens, right?
0: No, it's not dozens. Uh, So the commercial industry uh, has routinely killed, I I guess on average, about 3 million kangaroos a year, and that's of um, four or so main species on the mainland. Uh, We don't have current statistics for the last couple of years because they're not being um, publicized by the the Australian government. So we're yet to find out what... Numbers have been killed in the last couple of years. However, the, it's, it's the commercial industry, which is the, the you know the killing of kangaroos for meat and skins and, and fur and so forth. But there's also the killing of kangaroos for pet under this pest status, and there are no records kept of how many are killed under that um, centrally. So we don't, we've FOI, that information and come back with nothing. Um, there's a hell of a lot of illegal killing, so it's just commonplace. Uh, when I travel and speak to farmers a lot, a lot of our research at UTS is based working with farmers and local communities, and they openly admit to illegally killing kangaroos. It's just, it's not even a hidden thing. It's just acknowledged, well, you don't want to have to bother with the paperwork. And,
4: and does the public accept this?
0: Well, that's a good question. Um, there is obviously this uh, um, cultural um, uh, acceptance of this. And, and, and often we talk about the explicit harm that we sanction towards animals that we could consider as pests. So we, if something's a pest and we want to remove it, whether it's a fox or a cat or a pig or, or a dog or something like this, we, we, have, we spend money and we kill them. But that, there's also this implicit harm that, we make, that that explicit harm makes permissible, which is all the illegal killing, the, the shooting of ravens, the, shooting of, the killing of wedge-tailed eagles. Many farmers poison wedge-tailed eagles because they think that they take their lambs. I mean, it's just commonplace. So this is entrenched. I mean, kangaroos, yes, are really, really copying it, but this really reflects our entire attitude to sharing space with nature.
2: Could I just ask a question about the numbers? Because it often does come up in this debate. I was told recently that the um, in term, like there's a quota, but only about two percent of the quota is actually being killed. And I understand when it comes to fisheries that the kill um, the kill amount reflects the actual numbers. So, so is that two percent real? And does it reflect that the numbers are low? Okay.
0: So there's lots of things in there. So for those who don't know. There are methods that are used by the government to assess the total number of kangaroos that occur. They do that by flying planes over transects across New South Wales. They fly over these areas. And they have people on either side of the plane. And they count the numbers that they see. They then work out the area that they've surveyed. And the total area available. And nothing is excluded. And then they calculate a population estimate for that entire area. they then set what is considered to be a sustainable yield so it 's this idea of how many can you kill in a given year without allowing their population to crash um, obviously the intention with pest killing is to make them crash but in the commercial industry, there are guidelines around that now in every year that, that the go- we have government statistics for they have never killed the quota um, this can be from a range of things. A, maybe because there weren't enough shooters or so forth to, to actually do that, but we don't think that's the case. We think, actually, the problem here is the fact that the numbers that they're estimating in these landscapes are actually far less. So there are problems with the way in which they're counting. And so this quota, um, you could say, OK, they're not killing... If they think that there are 100,000 and they only allow to killing 15,000, and but they're really only killing two that's okay because we haven't impacted. But there's a lot of debate about whether that 100,000 is actually the correct number. Do we know, in fact, how many kangaroos there are in all of Australia? Is there any... No, the answer is no. We don't know. No. And and in fact, um, I wrote an article in the conversation just last year talking about the fact that there is this great unknown and there is some debate among scientists. Some scientists say that there are more kangaroos today than at the time of settlement. Um, there are other scientists, uh, and I include myself in one of them, that think that actually they've con- suffered considerable de- um, decline. And I, I and my research team and many of the students at UTS and elsewhere are now doing research looking at where are these gaps. There's huge swathes of the landscape where kangaroos are now absent, whether it's for cities or agriculture and so forth. So we're talking about uh, a group of species, and there's about 60-odd species of kangaroos, um, but these big, speak, the big ones, these top four,
4: have really suffered some decline. Well, can I, I can saw can I, that, sorry, just one second. When I, when I went up to Bathurst from the Blue Mountains, mm. we were looking because our 14-year-old, I want to see a kangaroo. And we only saw two dead ones on the road. Mm. And then we got to Bathurst, and I was taken for a 20-kilometer mm. ride where there might be. And we didn't see any. You know the story
0: of Darwin when he came in 1830 and he rode on horseback from Sydney to
5: Bathurst? He didn't see a single kangaroo. Mm. It was the same when the Russians came here to review their... They'd had a ban in place, um, already in place in 2009, and the industry brought them out to try and convince them that, you know, um, you need to open up this industry again, because they, 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 it actually crippled the industry by reducing 70% of exports. Um, and I remember Sadege um, Yushin saying, I have not seen one kangaroo in this country which is... Um, Apparently overrun with kangaroos. <laughs> so, it, and I think this goes to the original question as to uh, as to why have we arrived at this point where there is this mindset about kangaroos? That's and and the I question. think, and actually, you helped me in your answer there. I actually think that the machine of spin doctoring and pushing out the uh, message, the wrong message from the industries which are the meat industries and the grain industries has been very successful we probably could learn from it and they have managed to get most Australians think that kangaroos must be uh, removed they must their numbers must be reduced because there is this um, conflict between agribusiness and the the wildlife the kangaroos but I think the linchpin, and this is what's happened in many other industries is that um, most people who would have that view, who've been uh, convinced by this lie, most people would not agree with what happens to these animals. Most people don't know actually what happens when that shooter loads up his, gets his truck ready, hits the road and starts the killing. Or what the farmer does when the the farmers cannot get the uh, shooters to come on to the properties, and this is what's happening with this crisis over male kill, which we'll go to later, they will just go out and blast away at the kangaroos because they themselves have also been conditioned to form a view that this animal must be removed, otherwise there'll be no meat, there'll be no Sheet. wheat, Sheet. there'll be no sheep, there'll be no wool. So there have been, and people have, and so that's um, been communicated through to the average Australians that if we don't do this, there'll be a crisis. It's a bit like what the egg industry did when the campaign started to remove battery cages. There'll be no eggs. And it's the same that they said when, um, uh, you know, if we to ban live export, then the economy will crash and there'll be no jobs. Or spin-doctoring nonsense lies. But in, so part of what it is is to turn it around by showing people, the, as we did, the battery cage, and they say, I want eggs, but I don't want eggs from animals that are kept in confinement like that, then if the average people can see what it is happening to the female, the does, how the animals are shot, how they're uncleanly shot, it's not happening in the daytime, it's happening at night with, under long strobe lights and it's very difficult to see if you've killed the animal correctly and what happens to the young. Once that information is becoming clear and we can communicate that, I think most people can come, will come with us to turning this whole thing around.
4: I'm shocked that they would actually use the word, as I heard from you, of decapitation of babies. Mm. I mean, when we see that in the newspaper about ISIS, everyone is horrified. Mm. That they, How can they
5: just talk about it so openly? Well, we've got to that point of n- numbness and that's been their advantage so we have to turn that numbness into sensitivity of the issue what, what do
4: they mean by decapitation i guess it's not a very obscure word but
5: I'm cutting off the head they really mean that they <laughs> mm-hmm. but why well it's considered to be well the, well it's in the context of what was what was the process that was used before so if you shot a female and the fem and you go up to the female and she has a young in the pouch and maybe one at foot and about 50% of the time, she may have two. 75% of the time, she may have one in power. So it's, if it's this small, you used to be able to take it out and just bash its head against the bull bar of the vehicle or something other, else that's blunt. And that's a pretty ugly picture. So then the next stage, I thought, well, just cut its head off and that would be more acceptable. That's what the argument is. But, of course, the one at foot hops away. They can't get to that young, younger one and that, that kangaroo will die from you know starvation predation or um, exposure so when so probably 50 to 75 percent of the time when the shooter shoots a doe he or she's shooting three animals
0: and I, and I guess the, the issue there is um, because it's at, as, as Mark was saying, because it's at night it's in the bush mm. it, it's often just a lone shooter there's no enforcement of the regulation and it's very common for shooters to just ignore the pouch young, because it's horrific, even for them, to bash um, this baby. So they pull them out and leave them, and so
5: they'll dive. Um, and that's the key. It's three, four hundred, five hundred, seven hundred, maybe a thousand kilometres out in the outback, nighttime. So it's not like the seals and the baby uh, harp seals on the white snow, broad daylight, cameras flashing, front page of the Sunday Telegraph. <laughs> which caused that crisis years ago, as we know. So this is a hidden, a hidden evil, and that's the other dilemma. It's hidden, and, and it's very difficult to get those images um, out there to show people exactly what's going on. Now, Lee, why would the government accept this? What,
2: what, what's in it for them? <laughs> Uh, well, there's certainly nothing in it for the public, financially or morally. Uh, I think there's a number of things that come out of the conversation that we're having. I think it's worth, just before we get on to governments why we've ended up at this stage. Because I don't think we were always at the point where it's as bad as it is now. There was a Senate inquiry back in um, the 1970s in the federal parliament. And at that stage, um, there, I think... Most Australians would be horrified at the thought that kangaroo species could become extinct in this country. And my guess is I wasn't around at that time, but that that's why that inquiry was um, held then. It would be very hard to get the numbers for such an inquiry now. But then what you see is that I think that that then the word is starting to develop that there is a problem in the way that um, that, what's happening with our kangaroos And then the kangaroo industry starts to become very powerful, and we have a party here, it used to be called the Country Party, now called the National Party, who say they represent farming interests. They absolutely don't. They represent just a a certain section, um, and I wouldn't even call them farmers. They're industrial um, farmers, uh, big agri-businesses. And this isn't a huge agribusiness either. Um, we were just talking um, together before we came. There's only about three companies involved. But, really? yeah, but they, you know, these people are well connected. They put their money into lobbying, um, into pushing for certain um, um, support. And the support the kangaroo industry gets is considerable. There's a real merging between the industry and the government. And that's very well reflected on what happened in California recently. But I'll just go back to the 1970s because then there was a ban in Australia on the export of um, kangaroo products to the US. Uh, now that was lifted after pressure from the industry. But interestingly, this ban um, was retained in California. And then just um, there was a push to get that lifted. And the kangaroo industry, with a lot of support um, from Australian government sources, pushed to get that lifted. And they got support to the very top levels of Australian government, right up to the former ambassador, um, Australian ambassador in the US, Kim Beazley, um, former leader of the Labor Party. I understand that he actually went to California to lobby the, um, the, uh, the legislators there. Um, our office did a lot of work with the legislators and the researchers there. And uh, there, myself and others wrote letters. I'm very proud that we actually were able to help the, um, the, the people there who were horrified at the story. In some ways, it's like if you're more distant, you don't see these animals as pests. It's like we've reacted, and uh, Mark's given the example of the seals. I mean, many of us could remember decades ago of seeing that and thinking, how could you do that? And that's what I think has happened in California. At any rate... The end of the story is is that after a lot of pressure from the Australian government tied up with the kangaroo industry, they kept the ban in place. So that's a, that's a good news story. But meanwhile here, it's a very unhealthy, immoral situation with just a few operators um, who are then making the profits. Because the people that Mark's met uh, and described, I don't imagine those shooters make much money. Yeah. Very little. Yeah, they make very little they're, money. They're, country, they're in the they middle can, of it, as, yeah. just
5: like the animals.
2: Yeah. yeah, and they'd be country boys. That's what they would have grown up. They probably have few skills, and that's how they get some income. Uh, and meanwhile, where you know the, the cruelty uh, and it is yeah, it's just breathtaking. So the problem coming back to the government, the federal government, uh, its intersection with the kangaroo industry is really to drive the export industry. That, that is what the uh, federal government does. At a state level, they're supposed to address issues around animal welfare and conservation. But you really, when you look into it, you start to see they don't do that and they're really, at the end of the day, it ends up helping what the kangaroo industry and the federal government's doing is in further driving the export industry or just this general killing and culling, whatever people call it. So, again... So that is
5: where it comes in very handy of getting somebody elected into the <laughs> state government. Yes. Because in New South Wales, we're just about to have the kangaroo management plan reviewed. Well, it's actually being reviewed. And that happens about every four years, four to five years. So this year, my minister, your minister, Mr. Speakman, has to sign off on a kangaroo management plan, which is really a plan to kill maybe up to four, five, six million kangaroos in New South Wales. And so he's getting advice from his own department from the National Parks and Wildlife Service. But being in the house gives the opportunity to go and see him. And unfortunately, Uncle Max isn't here. But I had the opportunity to take um, a wonderful elder, um, Max Duruluminum, who's an elder whose totem is the kangaroo. So he is the kangaroo. So I took the kangaroo (laughs) to meet Mr. Speakman. And even, Okay, so we talked about all the animal welfare issues and many other issues, but the uh, crowning issue for the minister, which is where he did actually start to seriously take notice, is where Uncle Max said, I'm the kangaroo, indigenous people are connected to this animal, they, we have laws and lores connected with these animals, just like in the Mabo situation where the indigenous people have laws and lores connected with the land... We are connected to the animals. And if you sign off on the killing of me and my people's um, connection and deep and profound um, uh, connection to these animals, then you are signing off on the killing of us and are going against our laws. So he's got three weeks to respond as to whether I've asked him to send the kangaroo management plan or actually the the killing of kangaroos generally... ...to a uh, specific committee in New South Wales... ...so that the whole industry can be reviewed... ...where we can call everybody... ...including all the shooters that have told us what's been going on. But the new, the new factor... ...which now the government's going to have to take into account... ...is this connection with indigenous people and the kangaroo... ...and their relationship with it... ...and how they have never been consulted... ...and how the indigenous people ha- should have a say... ...and probably the final say... So things are possible. So we'll see what happens.
4: And would he represent, in fact, the the view of indigenous people?
5: He and and as many other elders as possible Mm. would would be called.
4: Fantastic. I was just
0: going to say, Mark, that one of the the issues is that um, the commercial killing industry is only one component of Mm. the ways in which these animals are persecuted. Mm. So they're hit on roads and they're trapped in fences and they're killed illegally and then they're killed as pests. And what we find in places where the industry, when the industry has struggled, um, that there's been just a a switch between allowing shooters for the commercial industry onto the properties to killing under pest licence. So um, one of the things that rings true all the time is the kangaroos are shot, regardless of whether it's for a commercial industry or, or not. And so we have quite a broad um, we have a, it's quite more, a lot, I find it a lot more complex. When, a I'm, complex when I'm speaking to farmers and basically it's their land they love being in the bush and they love animals and so forth but an animal on their land has to earn its keep and if it doesn't earn its keep it needs to get off and that's just the way that they see it and I can, I can appreciate that from their point of view to some degree but we have to find solutions for them to how they understand and, and contemplate
4: and share space with kangaroos. But Dan, to what extent are the kangaroos actually harming land? So that's a really good question,
0: Geoffrey. Um, the, the, when we've done science on this, and we've done lots and lots of science under a range of different conditions, we find that kangaroos, for the most part, don't compete very much with sheep and cattle. They, they eat a lot less. They hardly drink. Um, they avoid areas where there are sheep and cattle. They don't like to be next to them. So if there are sheep in your, on your, in your pasture, there won't be any kangaroos. Uh, they can, so, they, so they, they're avoiding them. They eat different plants. So, so is so this a
4: perception problem? Oh,
0: very yes,
5: yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll very be nice. a bit of a devil's advocate there, though. Um, We also, so there's that problem as well. We have to change this mind, help to change this mindset of um, farmers automatically assuming that these are competition. But my devil's advocate scenario is drought, a sudden drought, thousands of kangaroos, and the agribusiness wanting to survive. And one would have to, at a certain point, assume yes, there is now a competition. And so my question is. That's going to be the next thing that we'll have to work out an answer to. How do we actually solve that problem? Now, I put it once to um, the Minister for the Environment. Why don't we just do food drops for the kangaroos at that time and help them out and help them through the drought just as we do... (laughs) For livestock,
2: <laughs> I think Mark's actually raising a huge issue for Australia, and that is: is our farming practices sustainable? Yes, sustainable. Right. I it's mean, a that's a that's question. question. Right. Yes, that, yeah. is, that is barely, if ever, discussed in this country uh, because we have these um, hoofed animals that do so much destruction to our very fragile soils and mm. fragile mm. plants, mm. Uh, and so that's a discussion that is very much needed. It's been needed for you know, hundreds of years mm. since mm. we were first um, colonised mm. and invaded. But now with climate change it's absolutely needed and it's very relevant to what Mark says. When I'm in debates with some of the senators, what they just carry on about is Lee, you've never seen all these hundreds of kangaroos at the water hole and that you know that, you know it's competing with the animals. So that is coming up more and more. But I think where that's how I actually answer that is that I'm not denying what they're seeing. But just because you're getting hundreds of kangaroos at a waterhole or along the road where there's more green grass means often that in other parts of the landscape it is denuded. There isn't kangaroos there anymore, except they've gathered in certain places. And it can actually be another demonstrate that there is, pop- there is collapse of populations going on. Uh, and I think that's why we do need some really solid research um, done about this because at the moment yeah, it's, we don't have that.
0: I think, Lee, we do have good science around... Well, com- no, 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 no. Um, no, we do need more research. Um, we, we do have good science around the competition <coughs> during drought, and there's no doubt that, you know, at, that kangaroos do aggregate. When, when, when the land has been over-farmed uh, and becomes depauperate, then you do get animals coming together in places, but then they disperse. And it's not a good situation. But kangaroos are adapted to these kinds of conditions and they, they have evolved a, a strategy around that. So we see a lot of decline
5: in kangaroo populations. And isn't the problem that when they send out the troops to do the so-called count, they do the count, where I mean, all the kangaroos in a difficult time have congregated to be able to count right. and the numbers. Are 200, say, oh, we're, yeah. you know, we're overwhelmed Times, because yes. there are 5,000 around some source of water, yeah. where uh, you know, in the next 300, 500 kilometres, there's two. But they don't go count them. No. You know? so, so I
0: think what, one of the issues is, you're right, with this, um, we don't see the kinds of mobs that the early settlers saw. So they saw, they really did see mobs of thousands when they, when they were, were going through the landscape. I can tell you in 21 years of working with kangaroos, I've never seen that, ever, anywhere. The, the, issue, the issue is that, um, in terms of research, we need to develop better um, climate resilient practices for using and engaging in the land. We've just heard this week calls for changing man, um, farming practices to protect the Great Barrier Reef. And yes, that's a difficult thing to, to contemplate, but. And many people find it difficult if they've worked on the land and they passed it down, and their great-grandfather and their grandfather and their father did things that, that way. That's, it's, it's hard to challenge them. But, and yet we need that discussion. And that's the kind of research that we need. Um, that's the kind of the research that we're doing at UTS. We're working with communities who realize that something's broken and that the, la- and that the stocking rates for their sheep is far lower than what their fathers and grandfathers had and they cannot get them up. And they don't have a strategy for doing that. And the, ke- the kangaroo is really superb, you know, is... Uh, not superfluous. Yeah, but, but it's not... Is it a, a scapegoat here? A scapegoat, a, a sense, and it's not yeah. really achieving anything. At a goal, but... <laughs> <laughs> like the killing... The, 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 when they aggregate aggregating numbers, that's when the farmer will call, mm-hmm. call in his mate, either for a pest or a commercial shooter. But it's not really changing the fact that these landscapes have been pillaged. Right. And there's no way back. And sure. that's where we need to be focusing our attention. And, I mean,
4: kangaroos evolved to live here. Yeah, that's right. Know right. to find the water. Even, I think you suggested, and maybe you can tell us a bit more, that they use far less than a sheep. I mean, we all know how much a cow uses every day in a newspaper a read to make, you know, one hamburger, you need 10,000 liters of
5: water. That's insane. Sure. So yeah, it's, very, no. it's very interesting that... Um, in the budget estimates I was able to ask the Minister a question which floored him because he didn't have the answer and, and, and a, it was bleedingly obvious we needed to have the answer and the question was um, in, all this, in all this analysis of um, degradation of the environment and protected species etc has there ever been an analysis as, and, and I was talking about the demonising of cats and foxes and introduced species has there been an analysis of what is the difference of the impact on wildlife and the environment between agribusiness and yeah. its practices versus go. the introduction of wild animals or even yeah. native animals. Has there actually been an yeah. analysis as to what activity causes more damage and loss, of, loss of habitat and loss of animals? And the answer? It's, it's <laughs> us. No. It's us. No, no. That's <laughs> amazing. It's absolutely amazing because all the energy, all this energy which you're talking about goes into the demonising of animals, yeah. but it's the old trick, find a culprit, yeah. which is an illusion, blame them, and then we don't have to actually do anything where we, we st- are. We still Look. have
0: extremely high clearance rates, land clearance yeah, rates. We still <laughs> have well, <laughs> land clearance yeah. rates yeah. extremely high, particularly in Queensland, mm-hmm. in New South Wales as well. So we're still allowing these practices to go on. Um, and really, I mean, I know this is not our topic, but cats and foxes are, are put up there as this great impact on, on Australia's uh, and and it's small not mammals, true. but it's not true. Minimal
5: compared to how many, how, many wow. birds, how many birds are in that tree which is felled compared to how many the cats have taken in the last month.
4: Now, I don't know if you saw today in the B- on the BBC, five people sent it to me, this horrifying story about a single shooter on King's Island who shot 33,000 kangaroos. Wow.
2: Um,
4: I was on the BBC. It was on the headlines of the BBC, and I was shocked. And they mentioned voiceless trying to do something about it. You must have seen it, Brian. But, and, how, how and the idea it? was that they had to get rid of all the kangaroos on this island. Um, mm. But
2: we, have, we are notorious for slaughter, and I think one thing that we do know, that Australia has the highest rate of loss of mammals of any country in the world. Really? Yes. like And when we're talking about the mammals here, it's all those unique marsupials. It's it's quite unbelievable that, you know, there isn't more outrage. I think, like, it's a pleasure to hear yourself, um, you yeah, know, being concerned and being outraged. And, you know, we're a pretty laid-back country. And then it's strange, although very there's actually very few people who are farmers and on the land, there is a culture that's grown up about we are a country of the land, and what farmers need, farmers get, and what farmers, you know, you, you respect that. They get incredible levels of subsidies um, during droughts, which you feel for. Like, we've all spoken about that tonight, but, like, sooner or later, we've really got to grapple with this issue of how we're using our own country.
4: Dan, is it possible that you'll wind up like America, where the wolf is practically gone, and yet, or, or even worse, it in Norway where there are no wolves, and there haven't been for, what, 70 years, and if you ask the population, what are you most afraid of? They answer, wolves. (laughs) There are no wolves to be afraid of. There (laughs) are (laughs) werewolves. Werewolves, right. (laughs) Well,
0: there's there's really... Could we
4: reach that situation in Australia? There's
0: there's nowhere in Australia where dingoes are free from 1080. Free from? 1080, which is the poison that's used to kill everything, really. Um, you know, whether it's ravens or eagles or, or kangaroos or pigs or dogs, that's, that's what we use. So the Australian landscape has really, is, is interesting in some respects because we've lost, yes, we've lost um, a number of species more than anywhere else. We've also gained more than anywhere else. So we have now wild populations of camels. There are now wild camels for the first time in 2,000 years wow. in Australia.
2: And we Do they
0: things. harm
4: anything you uh, that's, <laughs> that's
0: contentious. Um, uh, they also benefit things. So all species, every individual animal, wherever it is, whatever it does, interacts with others. Sure. And this idea of impact and harm is really a value that you place on that. So if, an, if a herbivore eats a plant, is that evil? Um, <laughs> Um, if a if a if a dog, if a lion eats a person, is it evil? Right? These are these are things that carnivores and so forth do. So we, I guess, in the Australian landscape, it's very very interesting. We have dingoes which came down from Indonesia four five thousand years ago. Uh, we had thylacines, which they now have evidence that they were in some form of domesticated relationship with. Um, the indigenous people, really, many years ago. And the, the, so there's this, this been radical changing. Now, kangaroos do okay. They, they're, for the most part, most of them, because of their size, are, are able to withstand human globalisation in this Anthropocene that we're in, right? But we don't see that as a value that's worthwhile. We focus our attention on these extinct... Species that are extinct, that are going declining. If there's a few hundred, there's a hundred northern hairy-nosed wombats left, we pump millions of dollars into protecting them. But we don't care about hundreds of thousands or millions of kangaroos that are, that are shot in this inhumane way. And there's, this real, there's a fragmentation of the way in which we're really engaging with nature. So Australia's unique, in a sense, in the way in which its fauna has dramatically changed. Uh, relative to other places in the world. But we as a colonial, for the most part, colonial society have failed to adapt. We still form that kind of acclimatisation society approach where we try to make Australia look like Europe to make us feel comfortable. And that's fundamentally the problem. That's, that's where we start to need... We need our politicians and our sociologists and all these other people to start really engaging. in how is it that Australia is going to share space with the kangaroos and the other wildlife
4: that live here? Well, that is the question, Lee and Mark. How did this happen, that that a government goes along with this? If it's such a small industry, how do they allow themselves to be lobbied as if they were Washington, DC? (laughs) Where there's a lot of money involved. The The
5: farmer is God. The farmer is God. That's what no, I was saying. So if you want your seat, if your most of the seats are in rural areas, not city. So if the farmers are of a mindset and a delusion that these animals are noxious and must be killed, if you were to suddenly if you're and that's your seat, where your government has a lot of seats there, your party, and you start to bring in policies or suggest policies of changing that mindset, there's fear. Correct me if I'm wrong, that you will lose government.
4: Now, how did, they get to, how did they get to the point where they made the farmers believe that this is dangerous to you? They must have lived for hundreds of years with them without fearing that, right?
2: Oh, look, I think it's what we spoke about earlier, that uh, farmers, and I think Dan put it very well and very sympathetically, that um, some, a point would come when some of these farmers would see that there's competition and, and I think that there, at times in some drought situations there probably is, like there's complexities in any ecosystem. So uh, I, th- I agree with what Mark said, but I think there's been an overlay of it that now the, there's really... Power- we're talking about big money. It's Not a, um, a lot of money. I think it's a bit different from um, some of the other big battles that um, society is dealing with. But uh, these... People, you know, we've got a national party and a liberal party, and largely the Labor Party won't challenge on these issues, Um, even though it's a party more of the city. It just doesn't deal um, effectively with these issues or um, with any meaning or dedication. So there's one aspect of it is like what farmers want, farmers get, Um, and we've just sort of gone along with that and haven't questioned it. But now you've got big money. Um, you know, they'd probably whine and dine, you get the impression, um, with the politicians. They're down in Canberra. Um, some of the, the main uh, lobby group is sort of like half government, half um, industry. And so you know, there's an entwining there. And that's what the, the federal government's responsibility is about developing this as an industry. It's about developing the export industry. That's why they were over there fighting so hard to get that ban lifted in California. Um, it wasn't, um, you know, for just no reason. It was about expanding in, and that's, again, the work... Um, you know, like Animal Liberation, I pay great credit to them in terms of um, like the work that Mark did in effectively stopping um, the Russian trade was huge. Like, that was, that was one of the most incredibly significant campaigns. And the, the, the industry knows there's a battle going on. You know, yeah. like, uh, they're watching what we're doing. Um, and how about your own continue. party,
4: Lee? Has, have, I know you've had a lot of conflict with yeah. members of the Green Party yeah. who you would think would be totally on your side on this.
2: Yes, I wouldn't say it, it's severe conflict, but I certainly um, acknowledge that we, um, there's a debate around about the commercialisation of wildlife, so people would be horrified about the way the animals are killed, etc. But there are some people who are caught up, and sometimes um, former professor Michael Archer's name comes up in this. I actually studied zoology when he was one of our lecturers, so it's been interesting to watch um, how that's um, played out. But there's people like Michael who develop a, um, this argument that some people think is plausible, that the way to save animals is by the commercialisation which I think is just incredibly dangerous, incredibly wrong. Uh, And there's certainly a number of us within the Greens who continue to work for there to be um, ban on the commercialisation of wildlife. We
4: had to destroy the city to save it.
2: Yes. I was just going to add,
0: if I I may, I was just going to add to that that there's this idea that's one of the reasons why in the Greens movement, in the conservation movement, there has been acceptance of the killing of killing of wildlife for conservation purposes, particularly in relation to kangaroos, is the fact that the argument that sheep and cattle have really damaged... The amount of farming that we've done has really damaged the landscape. And that perhaps one way back would be to remove sheep and cattle from the land and, and if we're going to eat meat, why don't we eat something that was actually here and it's evolved and it's adapted? There are serious... And, and another issue that um, gets raised is the idea that um, they don't produce a lot of greenhouse gases. So whereas one of the biggest contributors worldwide is uh, cattle to, to ca- um, carbon emission, uh, greenhouse emissions, that, um, that, that that would be a reduction in that. So surely it's a great thing that if we switch to eating kangaroo, we'd have all these wins. The problem is it just doesn't work. So when you, when you sit down and you go through the arguments and you say... They produce far... There's, there's hardly any meat on them. They're very slow breeders. They're, they're very um, uh, sparse in the landscape. In order for everybody to have a... You know, be able to switch, you would just need to have millions and millions and millions of them in the landscape. It's actually a ridiculous argument. And they don't, but it's been and they don't
5: step up onto the truck... To yes, go into yes, small, just, small yeah. drive. Um, so, they jump over the fences.
2: <laughs> so never mind <laughs> the No, no right. so never mind the
0: welfare so issues, that's and just and the issue
5: moving them. Mm. I, never mind
0: the welfare issues, and there really is, as, as it's been said, there is general consensus that the welfare is issues around the, the killing is incredibly Poring. poor, and there's not much that could be improved. A couple um, of positive things. Can,
5: if you want, this, I thought you might want something. Positive in terms of where there's some yeah. work being done. Well, I think one great thing that's come out of the, um, the summit in Paris on, on climate change is that finally they acknowledge that agribusiness contributes yes. to global warming more than the transport system of the whole Correct. world. Yes. So that is gold. Yeah. And finally they got to that point. But we have the Russian ban, which seriously crippled the industry. Now the industry mainly relies on Europe. Um, We've had three meetings with all of the political parties, animal political parties from Europe and other countries. And this year, uh, the Dutch Party for Animals in Holland will be introducing debate, motion and a bill to ban the imports of kangaroo products into Holland. Fantastic. And if we have three or four more countries... They'll get it. And if we have three or four more member countries of the EU implement such a ban and at our, our, our um, meeting in Tirana in Albania we realized it could be a country that doesn't even import kangaroo meat like <laughs> now it doesn't matter so when you get that just like the baby harp seal issue for yes. Europe yeah. once you have five countries or about five countries then the EU has to address the issue uh, just like what happened with baby harp seal products same thing Uh, When about four or five countries banned baby harp seal products, the EU had to address it, and now there is an EU ban on baby harp seal products. If, and I think we can, in the next two or three years, get a ban on kangaroo products into the EU, collapse. Wow. Because Woolworths and Coles will look at what Europe has done. They didn't want to take much notice of Russia. They would look at what Europe's done, and it would be very embarrassing and an outrage for them to continue accepting kangaroo meat so then the industry if we can bring it to collapse and at the same time these debates about what are we going to do so what's going to then happen to all those kangaroos um, that aren't going to be shot commercially that's the next
0: question we can love this so what,
5: what was your experience in Europe when you went there how did people respond to well this is why I spoke this is why I talked about it I think it's the same issue with Australian people you show the picture and they're horrified. They're horrified. So what, what, so, the, so there hasn't been an industry, there hasn't been a, um, a mechanism that Australia has developed in Europe to cover that up. They told them they were farmed. They, they were? They told them that kangaroos were farmed, farmed, put up onto the truck and sent to slaughter. So they just lied to them about all what really happened. So we went there and told them, no, they're wild animals and there were all these problems that um, occurred. So it's the same issue So with the uh, our... Uh, Colleagues from other political parties when we showed the pictures, then they committed to because they know they can do something to help this issue. So that's so that's it's the great
4: information thing. really, being exposed to yeah. to reality. Yeah. What and maybe
5: it means we put fine purses to run thirty second ads during news time and prime time on TV saying, Did you know blah? You yeah. know, maybe that's trying to turn this mindset around. It's happened with mulesing, it's happened with battery cages, sow stalls, we can do it for kangaroos.
4: Dan, why would, you
5: get, why would you get scientists who
4: would oppose this? Is, are they in the pocket of industry or is it a genuine disagreement? Um, I mean, I think debate is healthy.
0: I mean, I think that, uh, you know, what is truth? The, the fact of the matter is, though, that when I'm out there, I see kangaroos suffering and not just the ones being killed, but the ones that are left. And so I now have PhD students out there trying to say, well, how can we work out what their quality of life is? In areas where there's heavy persecution, we don't see young at foot out and about, very much. So, so they stay in, their pou- in the pouch. Uh, in areas where they feel safer... So they're responding to the Oh, absolutely. Fear. You know, there's this fear, there's right? stress. So one of the things that we're working on in our group is ways no one's really looked at how do you measure the welfare and well-being of a wild animal. The focus has always been on domesticated um, animals or livestock. The welfare of wild animals has been really lost. And I actually have a PhD student in the audience who's um, pioneering this in developing new ways to to quantify this, um, collaborating globally, um, so that we can then be quantitative, rather than just saying, well, uh, and because you do need methods, you need to be able to. We we, do, we can't speak to them, but they're thinking things, and we need to work out what those things are. And when I'm out there, I see them having a terrible time. And there are some already anecdotal evidence that some kangaroos that have been where their mums have been hit on, hit killed in collisions and they've been rehabilitated, there's some indications that these animals might be suffering something akin to PTSD. PTSD, I was going to yeah, ask a, about but, that. But, yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of research that needs doing, but for the most part, mainstream science is ignoring it because of the entrenched, you know, that's the way that paradigms work, that it's very entrenched, very hard to um, say, well, I want to try something different. And, and in fact, Uh, Of the scientists that I know of that are are trying to do things differently, um, there's almost bullying from the other scientists. And and, and that's very real.
2: So I often get the impression that many scientists are, captured might be not a polite word, but that money comes from industry, therefore there is a closeness to industry. Um, Is that fair?
0: I don't, I don't feel qualified to comment. I haven't looked at um, some of those scientists and what kinds of grants they've been getting. Um, there's Certainly there's strong associations. Um, whether or not the money's, whether or not it's personal or whether it's financial for research, I, I don't know. There is certainly some programs that have been, I, I'm aware of some programs that have definitely been driven by that premise. And and when when, when science... I mean, science isn't objective, it's subjective. So when you set out to ask a particular question, you do so within the framework of whatever paradigm or ideology that you have. And I guess most of the science that's focused on kangaroos has been within a particular mindset that's already accepted that they're pests and how can we deal with this problem. The research that we're doing is just saying, how can we uh, enable these animals to lead um, quality lives in amongst people and their needs. So it's not putting them above people's needs, but it's just saying, how can we coexist, cohabit? And that's something that humans do very badly.
1: That was part of a panel discussion put on by Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute, uh, titled Rethinking Kangaroos. Thank you so much, Elise Burgess, from Voiceless. If you'd like to contact us, please do, on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter, or the website.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.